This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Raja Sibamani. He is a specialist with really two interests. He is interested in Ayurvedic medicine, and he'll get into exactly what Ayurvedic medicine is for those who aren't interested. He is also a board-certified dermatologist. And what we're going to be talking about is how these things fit together and really how the food you eat and your gut health and also your mental health has an outward manifestation into your skin health. Dr. Simavati, thank you very much for joining us today. You know, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about these topics and even more fun to see how we can learn more about ourselves while talking about them. I'm dying to know, what is Ayurvedic medicine? How did you get interested in it? Ayurveda is a form of medicine that comes out of India. I have to say, you know, when I first heard about Ayurveda, I grew up uh, in an Indian household. My mom used to always tell me, you should take more turmeric or you should drink this or drink that. And I used to think, oh gosh, I don't know about any incorporating this into my lifestyle. It's kind of funny. It's been a full circle. I didn't really think about Ayurveda until I went to medical school. And when I was in medical school, I remember learning about all these biochemical pathways and how the science of the body works. But one thing I felt was missing was I didn't get much training on nutrition. I only had just a couple classes on nutrition, and it wasn't even directed at how I should eat. It was more about, are you deficient in this? Do you need to eat a bit more of this kind of nutrient? It didn't have like a holistic package. And so that's when I started thinking about Ayurveda and started to really delve into it and then actually pursued the training. Ayurvedic medicine is, I think it's a very interesting way of looking at the body. They look at the body basically in the sense of balance versus imbalance. And then they describe those imbalances. First of all, the whole point is that we all have a harmonious state, a place where we find what we say equilibrium or harmony. And then all of us have these micro shifts away from that harmony. And Ayurveda's whole approach is how do you find how you've shifted out of harmony? And then how can you get that person back into balance? And there's a bunch of ways that we talk about what it means to be imbalanced. But that's really the whole point of Ayurveda is to take someone, if they've moved out of balance or have a tendency to move out of balance, how do you get them back into balance? It's definitely a slightly different approach from the classical uh, Western approach in medicine. But actually, there's a lot of bridges there I've found to be fascinating to explore. And then on the flip side... Can you give a little bit of a background into what a dermatologist is or interest that you have? Because I think the general perception is that dermatologists, there's, you kind of pop sits and and that's really your main interest, but it's this whole very complicated specialty that specializes in the skin. I know it's actually, it's very true that you bring that up. I mean, if anyone's watched Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs, it's definitely, uh, we're not all drinking watermelon water or (laughs) just looking at people that are just about to sunburn, writing little prescriptions. Yeah, you know, I think dermatology is uh, one of the coolest fields, of course, I'm biased. We go through medical school first, so that's four years of training. And then we have four years of residency, and then we finally become a dermatologist. And dermatology spans quite a lot of different demographics, different types of people. We see everyone from the very, very young to the very old. You know, there are medical things like, yes, acne is one of them, but we also see psoriasis. We'll see things like lupus. 
And then we'll also uh, take care of skin cancer. So we do surgery. We can also, when we do surgeries or if we do biopsies, you can look at the, the actual tissue and look at the cells under a microscope. So that part's pathology. And then we kind of combine it all together and also come at it from a psychological perspective because a lot of dermatology is psychology. And of course, with psychology comes the whole notion of cosmetics and how you interact with society around you. And so dermatologists really do medicine, surgery, and cosmetics, and we roll it all together. So I think it's a really fun field. And it's one of those specialties that most doctors, unless you're a dermatologist, really, you're not going to have that depth of understanding of the skin. But I would say almost every disease has a manifestation in what your skin looks like. Yeah, you know, I think the skin is so complicated and so complex, yet it's right there. It's so easy for you to just see it. And the reason we spend so much time learning about skin diagnosis and looking at the nuances of the skin is that sometimes it's really subtle changes in the skin that make a difference. And so sometimes if someone has psoriasis versus eczema, to someone that's not used to seeing the skin or even leprosy, you might think, oh my God, they all look really similar. But as you get into it, you start noticing there's little subtle changes. And your point is absolutely true. Even if you take psoriasis, for example, you can have many different kinds of psoriasis. So it's not so simple to just say, oh, this is psoriasis. You have like four or five different variants. And we spend a lot of time trying to learn all of these different variants. And you know what's funny? I have to tell you, I never realized how many Latin terms I'd have to learn. I didn't realize I was going to be taking a foreign language as part of becoming a dermatologist. But we have a lot of diagnoses too. I think it's something in the order of greater than 5,000 to 10,000 different diagnoses that you can put together. It's definitely a lot of little complex patterns and whatnot, but I think that's also part of the real interesting aspects of dermatology. I mean, there's so many little nuances that we have to think about. So we're going to dive right into the gut-skin axis, which is not something people typically think about. You mentioned drinking lemon water, watermelon water, or whatever it is, to improve <laughs> your skin appearance. But I can think of a lot of people I know that would be kind of unhappy with me if I didn't say, well, what are the foods that can make your skin that youthful, clear appearance? And then you can go beyond that into other things that you could eat to impact your skin. Specifically, my wife that is going to be angry if I don't ask that question. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of traditions from traditional Chinese medicine to Ayurvedic medicine, they've looked at the body as a holistic approach. So it's not just the skin on the outside and the rest of the body on the inside. A lot of it is thought to be that what you eat then shows up and reflects on your skin. And this is the area that I've been studying, but I think it's really interesting looking at nutrition and looking at how now there's a lot more knowledge about the gut and the gut microbiome and gut health. But I think one small example that a lot of us now are starting to understand, take, for example, acne. A lot of people used to wonder, does dairy make an impact or not? Now we're starting to learn more and more that if you eat dairy, especially low-fat milk, it can make your acne worse. And that really, I think, started to heighten our understanding around the fact that what we eat does matter. There's some really cool things, too, that uh, are coming out now. So if you eat foods that are really colorful, as an example, squashes, pumpkins, things that have purples, yellows, oranges, they have what's known as a nice chemical known as carotenoids. It's a whole group of plant-based chemicals. And plants make all these uh, really interesting chemicals. And turns out, if you eat more and more of these kind of colorful uh, vegetables, a lot of those chemicals can then show up on the skin and give you what's known as a food tan. And if you eat them at high enough rates, they can even help your ability to fight off oxidative, what we call oxidative stress in the skin so that you can have a bit more of a youthful look. So when you say oxidative stress, can you clarify that? 
Yeah, you know, we're surrounded by a lot of what we'd call environmental insults to the skin. Our skin is designed to be, one of the charges is to protect our body. And so it faces things like pollution, if there's a lot of pollution in the environment, sunlight, that's another one, if you get too much sun exposure, all of these things cause stress on the skin. And this whole concept of oxidative stress is when you have some sort of injury that hits the skin or some sort of damage that comes on the skin, it can create all these what are known as free radicals that can go around and wreak havoc and cause aging occur a little faster, cause the skin to damage a bit. And then it doesn't work as well as a barrier either in protecting your skin. And so anything that you can do to protect your skin against these changes is really important in maintaining a youthful appearance. So thinking about some of the specific foods you're recommending, is there a difference in the recommendations between low-fat milk and, say, whole milk that hasn't been processed? Well, you know what's funny? I, for the longest time, used to think low-fat milk was just you take the fat out of milk and there you go. Lo and behold, low-fat milk. Well, it turns out, no, it's a different state by state, but uh, and I'm in California, but it turns out that when they take the fat out of the milk, they usually put a filler back in to give it a bit of consistency. And sometimes that filler can have other factors in there. Like it can have things like a little bit of whey, can have a bit of sugar in there. And so it turns out that low-fat milk might actually not be so good for you if you have, in, in the example that I had talked about with acne, it might not be so good if you're giving someone an extra bit of a whey load or a little bit of extra sugar, then low-fat milk isn't just taking fat out, but there's changes in the milk itself so that there is some bona fide differences. So can you marry those two between the recommendations from classical dermatology and the recommendations between Ayurvedic medicine? Yeah, and so I think it's a good point to talk about Ayurveda just a little bit. In Ayurveda, they have what are known as the three doshas, which are physiological energies that describe the body by and large. And the three of them are known as vata, which is spelled V-A-T-A, pitta, P-I-T-T-A, and kapha, which is K-A-P-H-A. And so the way these three doshas work in the body is that vata is really related to motion, cellular division at the cellular level, but it also talks about just movement in general. You know, you need that because if we want to get things done, the whole idea is that if your body wants to get things done or you want to get things done, or if you want your thoughts to move, and I'm kind of transcending all the different aspects of the body, that's the role of vata. And then pitta is all about transformation. So metabolism, and when it comes to the mind, it's uh, looked at as motivation and your energy to go do something. And then kappa is more structure. So when it comes to the body, it's things like the bones, the collagen in your skin, just what makes up your body. And then in the mind, it also is more about steadfastness, loyalness. So there are all these concepts that cross over. And mill is known to bolster things like kappa. And unfortunately, acne is already an imbalance in what are known as pitta and kappa. So when you're adding more imbalance to an imbalanced state, that can make acne worse. Now, that's the Ayurvedic perspective on this. And that's been around for over 5,000 years because Ayurveda is over 5,000 years old. But now we're starting to see that some of these links may actually be true when we're looking at it from the Western approach and the Western research uh, paradigm. Can you give the classic medical explanation as to why you have acne? Because a lot of the elements that you spoke about with an imbalance, an imbalance of flow, et cetera, seem to resonate with how my understanding of acne works. 
Yeah, acne is definitely w- one of the most common conditions, but it's also one of the most complicated conditions. I actually spend a lot of time looking at acne. I think acne is a really important condition to think about, especially because a lot of teens get it it's right in their formative years, and it can have some major psychological impacts. But to go back to your question, yeah, acne is considered to be a combination of at least four different things. Uh, we have a lot of pores and oil glands that are located on the face, the upper chest, upper back. And when those oil glands start to overproduce oil or produce the wrong kinds of oil, inflammatory oils, it makes the body more susceptible to inflammation. So there's oil production. The pores also get clogged, which is not a good thing because now you're making oil and your pores are clogged. So then what happens is you start to back up with uh, these pores that are basically filling up with oil. Then you can have bacteria that overgrow. So that's the third principle. And then finally, when all of that starts to get out of control, you get inflammation. And some of that inflammation can be quite severe, and it can lead to the, the last issue, which is scarring. As you can see, you know, acne's got a few things in there that are involved, and they all come together. And uh, I think the rate of acne is like somewhere in the range of 85% to 90%, especially in the uh, U.S. amongst teenagers. Oh, sure. I can definitely see that. But what's striking to me is how you have an imbalance in your skin, the imbalance of exactly like you said of all those pores, but it's almost like it's different wording when you're talking about the Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah, actually, you know, that's a really good point. That's true. Because in the Western approach, we talk about oils being overproduced. And in the Ayurvedic approach, that would be looked at as a kaphic imbalance. And because kapha is, again, structure, and that relates to the oils in the skin. And so when you say oil being overproduced, then that's a kaphic issue, like the pores clogging. And that's Mm -hmm. usually because your skin is dividing too fast and forming these barriers. That, again, is a kaphic imbalance. And then when you have inflammation and basically you know, all the immune system coming in and just creating a bunch of inflammation, that's the notion of pitta imbalance in Ayurveda. And so Ayurveda has looked classically at acne as a pitta a kapha imbalance, but that, like you said, refers to structural changes in the skin and inflammation that really do lead to acne. As we know, not everybody's going to get acne. It's just certain people have certain tendencies. And the cool thing there is that if you have certain tendencies, the idea in Ayurveda and in Western medicine is can we figure out what your tendencies are and then can we try to adjust your lifestyle so that you don't make it worse and give your acne a better chance of not getting out of control. So for optimal skin health appearance, that youthful look that everyone wants, what are some of the foods that classic dermatology would recommend versus Ayurvedic medicine and how would they overlap? You know, this is a really good question. One thing that we do in the Western approach is that we do a lot of research studies. And then what we do is we try to pull all those studies together, come up with an overall recommendation, and then apply that to everybody. So what we try to do is we try to come up with high quality evidence and then make an average recommendation that we say is good for everyone. In Ayurveda, the approach there is more how personalized can we be to understand your particular imbalances then how can we give a recommendation that addresses those imbalances as best as we can personalize to you? So it's this dichotomy, it's this push and pull between the two sides. You know, one side is heavily focused on research and evidence, which I think is important, but then the recommendations can become very average. So when we start thinking about foods, one of the areas where I would say dermatology has focused a bit more on has been supplements and things that can be really studied in detail. I guess uh, when it comes to acne, there are some early evidence now, early studies starting to show that things like the Mediterranean diet 
can be helpful when thinking about acne. Still, we don't have a lot of studies when it comes to nutrition and skin, and that's what we're hoping to work more on. Mediterranean diets focus on things that are low glycemic index, meaning it doesn't have as much sugar, it doesn't cause your insulin to spike as much, and also looking towards eliminating dairy as much as possible. From the Ayurvedic perspective, what if someone has pitta kapha imbalance in the skin, what you're trying to do is pick diets that are going to help balance that. And so what that means is don't eat pungent foods, don't eat many spicy foods. The recommendations would be more along the lines of things that are a lot of fiber, a lot of vegetables, and things that aren't going to be too heavy either. So Ayurveda would say reduce the amount of oils and fats that you're eating and focus more on things that are light, and things that are a bit more astringent. So when we say astringent light, that's where you're looking at a, a more of a plant-based diet in particular, uh, not something that's really heavy on the fats. And then also looking to eat more of the full fruits and the full vegetables rather than taking a bunch of supplements. That's where the Ayurvedic approach would come in. I think what's going to be interesting is that we start to look at how can we build the research together? How can we start to incorporate uh, some overlaps? I will say one of the other cool things about Ayurveda is that there's a really a deep knowledge of herbs and herbology. A lot of people misunderstand Ayurveda to only be about herbs. Herbs is only one aspect of it, but there are some herbal approaches where they'll create herbal formulations using things like turmeric. Uh, for acne in particular, neem is another one, N-E-E-M. That's another one that gets incorporated. One that's really not known much at all, manjishta, M-A-N-J-I-S-T-H-A. It's a beautiful red-colored herb, and it's something that's been used a lot in India. What I would say is, in general, you don't want to just start popping all these herbs. You want to go talk to someone that's knowledgeable about these. The idea being that when you're thinking about diet, these spices, traditionally known as spices, can be incorporated into your foods and also into herbal formulations as part of the plan when thinking about Ayurvedic approaches. And it's interesting, the more Western approach, where they're looking really for population studies to say, on average, this particular food or intervention would be good for people in general, whereas right. the Eastern right, right. philosophy is, well, that's great. It may work on average, but it doesn't work specifically for you. That concept resonates for, with me because I do pain management and their guidelines and recommendations in general, but the way a particular person will react to a specific intervention or medicine sometimes is night and day different between two people. Yeah, that's so true. And you know, I will say, even amongst Western medicine, you probably find this too. When we're in a room with a patient, it's very hard to just apply a guideline. I think another thing that people might not realize, but may appreciate as they go and see their doctor is that we do have to do a lot of what we say gray area decisions in the room based on a person's different tendencies and whatnot. So even though we have a lot of evidence, we still do have to figure out, hey, what works with this person? What doesn't? What I like with the Ayurvedic trainings, it just gives me a bit more tools to work with when I'm trying to think about how do I personalize this person in the room? Because I'm sure even with pain management, it's hard to just say, hey, this is going to be the one thing that's going to work for you. And if it doesn't, then we got to figure something else out. And we're faced with that all the time because a lot of dermatology is, there are a lot of chronic conditions, require chronic management, chronic lifestyle changes, and it can be frustrating come in hoping, hey, I'll just make this one change and everything will go away. Sometimes it's not that simple. But we try to make it so that people can think about these things. I will say one of the things in Ayurvedic medicine that we really think about is even the mental approach. There are meditation tools, breathing exercises that can even help with stress. I also incorporate that when I'm talking to people about uh, how to better get handle on not only skin condition, but how it affects them mentally. 
I think that's a really interesting segue to go from food into your mental health also has an impact on your skin health, reflection on your skin health. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I started residency, one of the things that Peter Lynch was, we were lucky to study with uh, Dr. Peter Lynch. He's an outstanding dermatologist and he was one of my attending physicians when I was uh, just budding as a resident. And one of the things that always stuck with me when he used to talk to us about the role of stress was that he would say, look across the campus at any undergraduate campus right about the time of finals and you'll see that acne is blooming everywhere. It was something that really stuck with me because it definitely stress has a role in the skin and it's both ways. I mean, if you have a bad skin condition or a skin condition that's highly visible, it can affect you psychologically, but even the other way around, if you have a lot of stress going on, it can impact your skin in many different ways. Hair loss or acne or psoriasis, uh, it definitely has an impact. How do you have those conversations from, and again, from both sides, from a classic dermatology standpoint, and then what would be the Ayurvedic recommendations to balance stress and worry? See, there's a lot of alignment between Eastern philosophies and Western philosophies, because I think they both agree in principle that stress impacts the skin. I mean, there's no question about it. So the way I usually approach it is I try to understand how the skin impacts a patient when they come in. One of the first things I find out is why they're there and how does that affect them? How does it affect their relationships? How does it affect them socially? And I think that those kind of conversations really open up an opportunity between the patient and myself to have a deeper conversation rather than just, what am I going to prescribe you? And I feel like that allows me to understand what is it that really bothers them at the core. And then when we start thinking about the mental aspects, first and foremost, I think just being able to talk about it is a huge thing. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that stress is a role when someone comes in to see us. So that in and of itself, I think opens up a conversation, opens up open communication. And then when I start talking to them about the stress itself, if they need tools, I really like to talk about meditation. I really like to talk about approaches to meditation, how they can do it. And not only that, just uh, thinking about uh, how they breathe. I mean, one small thing that we all do is we're all chest breathers usually. And in Ayurveda, what we think about, and this isn't specific to Ayurveda either, is to become stomach breathers. I mean, yes, we know that we breathe with our lungs, but this whole notion of breathing with anxiety rather than breathing with a sense of calmness, it does make a difference. And I talk to my patients about that. And I think sometimes those simple little changes can make a huge difference. To be honest, I thought the breathing thing was kind of goofy. Because this is a breathing thing. I, it's like I know how to breathe. But yeah, no, if, exactly. if anyone's ever done a CrossFit style workout or a high intensity workout, you'll notice very quickly if you don't manage your breathing, you'll burn out so much faster. And if anyone's done or familiar with something like wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, specifically Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they talk all the time about managing your breath because it regulates your stress response. And if you can manage your breathing it gives you that much more endurance and allows you to function that much better. And a good coach will always say, manage your breathing and manage your energy flow. You know, it's funny you bring up breathing. My first lesson in breathing was I learned the flute. It wasn't for very long. I have to say in the fifth grade, I learned the flute for a year. And I remember when I first started playing the flute, you're always trying to blow and get a good sound. What ends up happening is you end up starting to get lightheaded extremely quickly. And I started even learning at that point that the way you breathe and the way you control your breath does make a huge difference. So it's no surprise, especially when you're thinking about athletic activities, that breathing makes a big difference. You know, one thing that I've learned along the way, we do a lot of biopsies and people 
are never happy that they have to get shot before we do the biopsy because we numb them up. But what I do, even with uh, young kids, as young as five, even six, I do take them through some breathing exercises where we have them focus on breathing in and breathing out slowly and whatnot. And I've found that it makes it so much easier to do these biopsies because they're able to handle their anxiety and the pain that comes with putting the needle in before we numb up the spot. Them focusing on their breath makes a pretty big impact in their ability to be okay with the biopsy which I underestimated that too. I have to say, I was like you. I was thinking, hey, how much is breathing going to really impact this? But it really makes a difference on calming someone down, even in the moment. And so that's changed my whole opinion on breathing. And especially after I've gotten into Ayurveda, because breathing is so essential there and how you breathe. And I think that would be immediately applicable, not if someone's having, well, obviously if someone's having a procedure done, but also just say if you're in a stressful situation, if you're in a meeting or in a social encounter that becomes stressful, that's something quick you can do. Initiate this breathing exercise and calm yourself down. Can you just talk through quickly what that breathing exercise looks like? Yeah, just to keep it really simple, one of the things that we do that I like to talk to people about as a very first step is just pay attention to how you breathe. Do you see that when you breathe, is your focus on your upper chest? Because believe it or not, a lot of people, when they breathe, they're really focused on their upper chest. Or do you focus down into the stomach area, lower chest, really focusing on diaphragmatic breathing? And that in and of itself, I think that's where I start with. And I get people to really think about breathing with their, and again, going back to breathing with your stomach, the idea that you really breathe not using your upper chest muscles, but using that lower chest and the diaphragm and really focusing on that. Because I think when you force people to take a breath from below, it forces them to take a deeper breath and slow down a little bit. And that's one simple exercise that I get people to start thinking about. I know that if I'm in a stressful procedure or a stressful social situation, what have you, that deep tummy breathing where literally your tummy kind of goes out, comes back in, it makes a huge difference and the stress level drops very, very, very quickly. Yeah. And you know, I think that even with pregnancy, Lamaze classes and whatnot, this whole notion of breathing, I think by and large, it's like over and over again, we see there's so many good aspects to learning how to breathe. You know, I have to say growing up, I don't know if it was true for you, but no one actually taught me how to breathe. I grew up in the Hindu religion. Once you get to a certain age, there's this uh, point where you start to learn the prayers and whatnot. One aspect, and I've moved more towards spirituality personally myself, one aspect that I started learning around 11, 12, 13 was this whole notion of how do you breathe and breathing out of the right nostril versus the left nostril. And uh, I don't think I fully appreciated it. I think it was just going through being a child and learning and going through the motions. But looking back, I am thankful that at least I had that seed of thinking about what breathing means and how breathing isn't just breathing, but there's a way to breathe. Can you comment as a way of stress management? So part of what I do is I'll treat people with cancer pain. And I've had other people come on the podcast talking about being diagnosed with cancer and other terminal illnesses and how they dealt with it. And that's naturally an incredibly stressful thing. I've had other people come on who they spoke about how classic Western religions don't really seem to resonate with them. Can you go into a little bit of how Ayurvedic traditions or spirituality fit into that? Yeah, actually, this is such a great question. This is a great point that you're bringing up. I don't always get a chance to get into this, but I think this is a really important area. So Ayurveda, again, going back to those three doshas, Ayurveda actually looks at life as being three different components as well. Like there are times where certain doshas dominate. And when you're young, it's thought of as the kaphic time in your life. Going back to what kapha means, that's that dosha that refers to structure, strength, 
It's a time of growth, a time of building, a time of tissue expansion. That's a time when little babies need milk. You need insulin to help you grow. And from the Western side, the whole point is there's a period of growth. And Ayurveda looks at that too. Then comes the middle portion, which you could say is like the early 20s to about the 50s, 60s. That's the pitta time of life. Okay, now you've had the chance to grow and now you're in that chance of transformation and you're able to not only impact change within your body, but impact change on your mind, impact change on your environment, impact change on the people around you and really get to put forth your energy with you know a lot of motivation, a lot of just gusto. And then comes the period of life, which is known as the vata period of life. And that's where things are a bit more focused on. And vata is composed of, and in Ayurveda, they have this notion of elements. When you translate to English, it loses a lot of its effect. The idea of the air element and the ether element, both of those elements are really focused on a time of reflection, a time of pensivity, really thinking about how things have gone and thinking about how you can impart that wisdom. But also built into that is the notion that now, this is a time where your body is going to start to break down naturally. You can't sustain that growth that was there in early childhood or even during the middle portions of your life. And now, you know, you'll start to see the skin starting to thin. Your oil glands don't produce as much. So you have a tendency towards dryness, which is also in Ayurveda known as a vatha imbalance. There's a tendency towards graying of the hair, which is as pitta continues on, it's thought that as pitta goes out of balance and vatha takes over, then you have a bit of graying of the hair and your energy energy levels start to slow down, your sleep starts to change. In Ayurveda, there's this natural notion that aging is actually part of the process and it's actually embraced. You learn to understand that that is part of how we age. So in Ayurveda, this notion of anti-aging isn't always the approach. It's more healthy aging and understanding that we are going to go through a process of aging and we are going to go through a process of, I don't like to call it dying. You know, I like to call it living, but just continuing to live well, but understanding that there is a process of slowing down and moving towards the end of life. And so end of life isn't feared as much in those scenarios. We do realize there's times when maybe end of life comes sooner than you are ready for. And of course, I think in any religion or any culture, that's never welcomed. But I will say the Ayurvedic approach allows for the aging process to be graceful. And I think that's a really important uh, perspective to have. I think that's uh, if standard religions aren't really resonating with people. Having alternatives, and like you mentioned before, having a variety of things you can choose from is often very worthwhile. I will say one of the things that uh, comes out of the Ayurvedic tradition, especially the Vedic traditions, and again, I, I'm setting religion aside because this doesn't happen. Like Ayurveda, these are all standalone things. Yoga is a, thought of as the physical component of Ayurveda. Ayurveda is more the diagnostic, uh, lifestyle management. But when you think about yoga and being yogic, there is that uh, whole physical component. And in yoga, there's so many different kinds of yoga too. For example, the hot yoga that's really taken, I think, the country by storm, we don't recommend that for people that have rosacea or acne. You can put your pitta out of balance, the heat component in your body out of balance. And then as you kind of go through the different stages of life, there are different kinds of yoga that can be useful to help bolster the imbalances that naturally would form over time. Not only is it to just say, oh, you should age gracefully, but there's actually some practical measures that you can take to help you age gracefully. Well, that's an interesting thing to think of as yoga is not just a standard intervention, but there are different types of yoga that would maybe be more beneficial than another type of yoga. 
Absolutely. I think one thing I would recommend is because yoga is so easy and so accessible now is that for anyone that's listening, if you haven't started to think about yoga or tried it out, you should uh, go to the local yoga studio and try to get involved. It's so accessible nowadays that I think I have yet to meet anyone that's regretted starting yoga. Any closing thoughts about the gut-skin axis, mind-skin axis, or Ayurveda medicine that you wish that people would know or any parting thoughts? Yeah, well, one thing that has always been on my mind is to impart the notion that we're not just piecemeal organs and that we really are holistic. And when we think about being holistic, you really do have to take the gut, mind, skin all into account. I think the way the research is moving now is we're starting to incorporate all of these things. So we're starting to understand that, yes, not only is what you eat matter, but how you feel and how you think matters. And then so when you're thinking about a skin condition, think beyond skin deep. It's not just putting something on the skin, but if you want to impact long-term change, you should also think about how am I feeling from a mental standpoint and how am I doing from a gut standpoint? Because one of the central tenets in Ayurveda is if you have an imbalance on the skin, it's a reflection of an imbalance on the inside too. And so if you do have an imbalance on the skin, that means there's other things going on within you. So I think it's important to always continue to think of ourselves as a full beings. We're not just one organ. And that's what I hope to impact with my patients is for them to understand and feel empowered that treatment is going to go beyond just a, a skin treatment. There's only one of you, so and the world is a large place. So if someone wants a more, like you recommended, a more tailored approach where someone sits down with them, they talk to them, and then give very specific and tailored recommendations regarding, say, yoga and food and breathing exercises, etc., how they learn more about Ayurvedic medicine. Well, with Ayurvedic medicine, I think there's more and more resources now online and when it comes to yoga, there are so many yoga studios around. I think the first thing I do tell people, if you have a concern with your skin, please do try to see a dermatologist for starters so that there needs to be a diagnosis or whatnot that you get a really accurate diagnosis that's made. And then when it comes down to thinking about going beyond that, what I would say, it, it does take a village. It does take uh, many different practitioners to come together. I tell people that when it comes down to nutrition, I can have some conversations, but it's really important for them to maybe get in touch with the dietitian. We have resources where I have dietitians that I can refer to, a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. I think the idea is that there is a community out there and look around and see who's in that community in your neighborhood where you live. These things are much more accessible than you might realize. And you can even look online and start to get resources about Ayurveda or about yoga that can just get you to start thinking about the process of taking it to a holistic step. That's a very well thought out. I really appreciate the response of It Takes a Village. And really, you need a variety of people to come together who are experts in their field to give you the best care for whatever ailment you have. Absolutely. Yeah, we all got to work together. There's a lot of experts out there. We just got to all talk together and work together. And we're all patients too. I think that's the central point of the whole thing. Well, Dr. Simavati, thank you so much for taking the time. Any social media contacts you have, we'll post. Do you want to discuss them? And then we'll post them in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. I appreciate that. First of all, let me say it's been a pleasure talking about this. I think it's a fascinating area. One of the websites that we've been working on to educate the other professionals, but the general public can always come in and read articles on there as well, is learns skin.com. That's an area where we put up high quality videos, 
high quality articles so that people can start thinking about the holistic approach when it comes to skin and beyond. And then in terms of social media itself, I have not released my social media yet, but we are going to be releasing a website called Jiva Factory. And it's just going to be looking at what are some holistic approaches. So stay tuned. That should be, I should be deploying that. And the website you said was Live Skin? Learn Skin. Oh, Learn Skin. Yeah, Learn Skin. L-E-A-R-N-S-K-I-N.com. And I will say, I'm going to recommend everyone be very careful with what they're getting off the internet. So I definitely appreciate you putting up a website that people can go to knowing it's coming from a legitimate board certified dermatologist. So you can trust the information you're getting versus information that's put up by someone with really no medical background. The information you're getting might be useless at best and harmful at worst. Yeah, and I will say on that website, it's uh, not only myself, but actually it's a whole community of integrative medical practitioners. We have traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, naturopathic doctors, um, Ayurvedic uh, practitioners, and then physicians, dermatologists, and we all come together and peer review. We try to make it so that it's both integrative, but also scientifically accurate as much as possible so that, like you said, uh, incredible information is sometimes hard to find on the internet. So we're trying to do our part to help bring credible information out there. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.